Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. I'm glad to welcome back to the show today, Oz Guinness. Oz has been a frequent guest and friend of this show, and I'm excited to have him back on today to talk about his latest book, which is called Signals Transcendence. In this book, Oz talks about the experiences of life that we can have that work as promptings that lead us to look at what can be beyond uh, our seen experience of life to the unseen and how if we follow these promptings through these signals of transcendence can lead us to what is uh, the ultimate, which is God. Oz Guinness is the author or editor of more than 30 books, including The Dust of Death, The Call, Fool's Talk, and the Magna Carta of Humanity. A frequent speaker and prominent social critic, he has addressed audiences worldwide, from the British House of Commons to the US Congress to the St. Petersburg Parliament. He is a senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics and was the founder of the Trinity Forum. Before we get into this great conversation, let me encourage you to subscribe to Filter wherever you get your podcast so that you don't miss out on any of our future episodes. Also, if you click the link to the show notes in the description below, you can sign up for our email list so that you can get an email in your inbox anytime we release uh, any new content. Also, if you've been helped or enjoyed uh, this episode or any of our other episodes here on Filter, it would greatly help us out if you left us a rating and review and shared this show with your friends. Lee Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Whenever you take these simple steps, it'll only take a minute of your time, but it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Oz Guinness. Oz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, real pleasure to be back. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back. I think that you are... Um, you, you now hold the top spot as our most frequented guest. Uh, it's, it's a close race between you and Doug Grothuis. Each of you have been on several times, but uh, you both write so many books that, uh, <laughs> that it's natural that uh, you and Doug would be uh, in those top two spots. But it really is a pleasure to have you back on and appreciate the time that you've given to the show in the past and your willingness to come back on today. Well, thank you. The pleasure is mine. Yeah. So we're having you back on today to talk about another new book that you've written, which is called Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. This one is closely related to another book that we had you on to talk about uh, called The Great Quest. And so this one would be a uh, companion volume to that one. And uh, I really loved it. And so let's start by talking about what is a signal of transcendence, the core idea of this book. Well, the idea comes from my mentor, Peter Berger, who introduced the idea back in the 1960s. And his idea was that everyone has experiences which, if they think about them, puncture what they believe up to that moment and point beyond it to something which would have to be true if the experience is meaningful in the way they feel so deeply. So the two key words there, experiences that puncture and experiences that point towards. Mm. In other words, they're kind of promptings 
for people to start searching and seeking for the meaning of life. Yes. You related it to another idea, uh, a Scottish, uh, not Scottish, an Irish phrase uh, called thin places. Well, you know, we live in the modern world, which Berger himself described as a world without windows. Or to take a classical example, Plato said, you know, many people live in a cave. They're like prisoners in a cave. And the reality is all they see is flickering shadows on a wall cast up by a fire behind them. So that someone who escapes the cave and gets out into the sunshine, if they go back, seems like a madman. No one would believe him. Mm -hmm. And people would almost prefer to be in the darkness of the cave. Now, if you look at our modern world, with its highly secular materialistic ideas, we live in this world without windows. In other words, the unseen world is unreal. And many people have a very shrunken view of reality, what Max Weber called the disenchantment of the world. And we need, as C.S. Lewis used to put it, to re-enchant the world, to get people to listen to the experiences they actually have that point beyond the secular and the materialistic to a far deeper and richer reality. That's what the book's about. It's not arguments, like the other book you mentioned, although they're supposed to be companion books. Mm -hmm. There's stories to prompt people to try and think. Yeah, and so these signals of transcendence that uh, bring a piercing from the unseen world into the seen world that we're in, uh, you related to this, as I said before, this uh, this Irish phrase of thin places. And so these are the these are places and times where those two worlds become much closer together and the veil that separates them is not as thick as it is uh, otherwise. You know, I have the story towards the end of the book of... Uh, Kenneth Clark, the great art historian. And when he was in a church in Florence looking at some of the magnificent Renaissance art, he said he was overcome and he, quote, felt the finger of God. Now, in his case, he brushed it off for various reasons he gave. But when I played that story to many CEOs, or a friend of mine did it with a group, another group of CEOs, all of whom Uh, most of whom were were atheists, every one of them admitted that they had had such an experience in their life, but they didn't have words to describe it. Hmm. And in many cases, like Kenneth Clark, they didn't follow through on it. Hmm. So if, uh, so a a signal transcendence, is this something that is, you know, if, if Kenneth Clark, for example, experienced it in a church, does that mean that if someone's listening and, they want to explore this for themselves, all they need to do is visit a church. Or for someone else, if it was listening to a certain song, do they need to listen to that song? Well, you can't engineer it or set it up. And I've got 10 stories here. Kenneth Clark's is the only one in a religious setting. And many of the other stories have nothing to do with anything that's specifically religious. And that's why it's the promptings of life. It's ordinary experiences which trigger this search in people because, as I said, it punctures and it points. It's a contradiction of what people believe, and it's a pointer and a desire to something better. Hmm. And so whenever you think about the signals of transcendence and how 
they can be so powerful, and yet if not explored further, they can be brushed off. But yet, at least in that moment, it can be powerful and, and life-changing for a person, uh, it, whether it changes their life in that moment or they think on it years later, like with Kenneth Clark. So it's this moment that's so powerful, and yet it's examples of uh, in, in different people's lives that are so diverse from religious settings to non-religious settings to being experienced through uh, nature or through art and otherwise. Uh, whenever you think about the signals of transcendence and how they work and you see it play out in different people's lives, how do you make sense of it uh, theologically? Like, How do you uh, con conceive of God being involved in this? Is or Are the signals of transcendence something that do you think it is God using that moment to speak uniquely uh, to that person's heart? Or is it just a feature of common grace? Uh, how do you think of it in, in those terms of what they are theologically speaking? Well, take Ludwig Wittgenstein, the great philosopher's idea, that the meaning of a system is always outside the system. Hmm. You know, there's so many things in the world that assume and require that something that goes beyond the world to really understand them. Hmm. Or to put it another way, theologically, if we make reason or science or anything that's purely within nature, the ultimate, we're creating an idol. And these things always point beyond themselves to something which has deepened themselves. Of course, ultimately, they all point to the Lord. Hmm. And you can say from the vantage point of heaven, you know, all creation is singing the praises of the Lord. But these experiences come to seekers or atheists or people in other faiths and just prompt them to think much more deeply. Now, of course, there's no one signal, signal that speaks to everybody. And you can misread or brush aside a signal, as I mentioned with Kenneth Clark. He is quite honest in his memoir, his autobiography, saying that if he felt the finger of God and were to go back to London, people in the intellectual art world would think he was a crackpot. Mm. But not only that, he admits at the time he had a mistress. And to face up to, quote, the finger of God, he'd have to deal with his life morally and didn't want to do it. So he quite open about it. he brushed it off. And many people thought that was the end of the thing for him. But in fact, at his funeral, with many of the artistic royalty in Europe there, his wife and a priest got up to say that Kenneth Clark, six months before he died, had re-engaged with God and had been baptized into the church. In other words, unknown to many people, he'd brushed it off for a while, but the questions had never left him, and he came back and finally came to faith himself. Mm. Now, if you share one of these stories and the idea of signals of transcendence with a group of, as you mentioned before, for example, a group of CEOs, and you have a mix of people in there who are maybe of other religions or maybe of no religion and are atheists, you share these stories and they respond, well, those are just a, an emotional response, right? How would you respond to them and say, well, no, it should be investigated that there is more and it's not just an emotional response or, uh, or, or, or something that is purely natural? Well, I think just the quality of the thinkers in the 10 stories I tell just blow that apart totally. So you take C.S. Lewis. 
The signal of transcendence was his being surprised by joy. He was an atheist, a pretty hard-boiled atheist, growing out of his own experience of the death of his mother and the terrible carnage in World War I. And he was an atheist, and he knew many hard-bitten atheists. But he had these recurring experiences of joy. Hmm. It wasn't pleasure. That's the senses. It wasn't happiness. That's circumstances. Joy punctured everything he believed. and point, Now, it was 13 or so years before he came to faith. But all those 13 or so years, he was searching. You can't say for Lewis... It was emotional. The same mm. is true of W.H. Auden or G.K. Chesterton and all of the Kenneth Clark himself or Tolstoy. Far, far more than emotional. Mm. But of course, each person has to think for themselves. There's no one signal that triggers it for everybody. And so they're all different. And some people, as I said with Kenneth Clark, shrug it off. Yeah. Those who follow the message of the signals that point beyond themselves, eventually they find. Yeah, and I think that that's a great uh, emphasis to go back to Lewis and point out his experience and this joy that he describes. There's a German word that he would use to describe it, uh, Sinsucht or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Uh, the, this deep desire that he would discover in different places or through different experience. And I think what you said is a great response. It is something different than just a uh, pleasurable feeling, uh, such as the pleasure of eating a a great meal and how good that feels. That's not what we're talking about. It's something uh, like Lewis described the feeling of a longing for your true country. An unsatisfied desire. He said that was more desirable than any satisfaction. It haunted Mm. him. And he followed it. Or take, you know, maybe my favorite of all the 10 stories is W.E. Jordan. He was a poet, of course, one of the greatest in the 20th century. But as a young man, he was a left-winger, an atheist, and gay. He fought on the Republican side against Franco, the fascist, in the Republican Civil War. When he came over to America in 1939, that was his position, a hero of the left and atheists, and the early gay movement. But then, there was no television, of course, in 1939, so if you followed the news, the best way was either the newspaper or the documentary. And he would go to his local cinema every Saturday to watch the documentary. And one Saturday, the war in Europe was being covered, and the siege of Poland. Now, of course, America was neutral. So he was English, but unbeknownst to him, almost all the audience in the Upper East Side of New York were German. And naturally, they were on the side of their own people. And in the darkness, watching it, Nazi stormtroopers were bayoneting women and children in Poland. And the German audience were egging them on. Kill them, kill them. Orden sat there in the darkness, and this was profoundly intellectual. And he says that in five minutes, his entire worldview was overturned. He was looking at something that was evil. He'd always thought a little better politics, education, psychology. Humans are basically good and we could cure the problem. No, he said, I can see there is evil in the human heart. 
But then, even worse, he said as an intellectual, there was no absolutes. That was what fundamentalists believed. There were no absolutes. Everything's relative to your culture, your class, your country, or whatever it is. He said, I looked at that and I knew it was absolutely evil. And so Auden said, in essence, I left the cinema a seeker after an unconditional absolute in order to be able to judge evil. And I met Jesus. Now, in Auden's case, he came to faith pretty soon. It wasn't a dozen or 13 years like C.S. Lewis. So there's always a gap between the signal which prompts the search and then people's discovery of faith if they pursue the search. Mm. And um, you've mentioned before that these signals are so important in our modern world because the modern world that we live in uh, has these features that prevent us from seeing the unseen world and, and not being aware of these signals. Can you explain what is it and what characteristics is uh, do we have in our modern world that hold us back from being able to uh, appreciate or discover these signals of transcendence? Well, there are many features of modernity, but one is its secular consciousness. As Berger said, a world without windows. C.S. Lewis, a windowless world. Put it like this, if you think for a minute, the traditional world, it didn't have to be Jewish and Christian, it could be anyone's world. The traditional world held that the unseen was not unreal. In fact, the unseen was more real than the real world of the seen, and people understood things as basic as sex and business and farming in the light of the unseen world. But a feature of the modern world is what is unseen is unreal. So we talk about the real world, the world of politics, science, technology, business. That's the real world and supernatural, totally unseen fiction. And so most people are living in that world. And of course, we're very comfortable. And we have so much to live with our consumer goods that we don't bother to think of what it means to live for and any ultimate purpose. So many modern people are living, in effect, comfortably in the darkness air-conditioned of Plato's cave. Hmm. And we need to break out of that. We need, as, as I said, C.S. Lewis put it, a re-enchantment. In other words, in the Bible, but not only in the Bible, in the pagan world, in the world of Africa and Asia and other parts of the world today, this constricted view of modernity is not the final view. And we need a massive breakout in the Western world to see the broader, deeper, richer reality. Mm. That reminds me of what Francis Schaeffer called uh, you know, the, the two-story uh, view of the world, where that we live on the bottom story, which is the realm of facts. And in that realm, we have all the things you mentioned, politics, science, and so on. They're the things that, we, that are real and that we know. And on the upper level is the realm of values. It's the realm of the subjective, and it's there's nothing uh, ultimately real about it beyond just what the individual assumes for themselves. No, that's right. Or put it another way, Aaron, if you think of the families of faiths, the Eastern family, Hinduism, Buddhism, the ultimate reality is simply nature, 
all the basic ground of being of it all. There's nothing outside the cosmos itself. And the same is true basically for secularists and atheists. But the difference of the Abrahamic faith and above all Judaism and the Christian faith is that God is personal and transcendent. He is the creator of it all and he's outside all. And so any view that's shrunken down just to this world misses the Lord entirely. Yeah, so the signals of transcendence are uh, like messages from the upper story meant to well, I don't, make I don't, us aware. Yeah, from, from the supernatural world. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, and so the book is organized where you tell the stories of many, uh, several different intellectuals and leaders from a, a lot of different backgrounds who experience signals of transcendence themselves. You already mentioned W.H. Auden. His story was uh, a great one and certainly one that sticks with you after you read the book. Another one would be, and, and I'll say, like I said, I, I finished the book and loved it. I recommend everyone get it. But the G.K. Chesterton chapter, I would say, is worth the price of the book alone. The whole book is great, but that chapter was just really excellent. Tell us about Chesterton, his life, and uh, the story, the particular story that, and lesson that you pull away from his life. Well, I'm glad you had that reaction. I love Chesterton. You know, obviously, C.S. Lewis is the best-known apologist of the last century, but many people don't realize how much he owed to Chesterton himself. Now, in Chesterton's case, he grew up in a wealthyish family in West London, but he was creative, artistic. He didn't want to go to Oxford and Cambridge with his friends, so he went to art school, mm -hmm. the Slade College of Art. And it was kind of like postmodernism today, bitter, cynical, debunking, deconstructing, verging on nihilism. And Chesterton was flirting, as he put it, with the dark powers and the occult. So he could have described his own position very close to that. Here is a world broken and ruined. But then suddenly, he said, he was stopped in his tracks by a dandelion. I love that. Not by a rose or a Mozart sonata or the birth of a baby or a margarita on a Californian beach. No. Stopped in his tracks by a dandelion, a humble weed, but with incredible beauty. And it challenged him to see that the world certainly is broken, but it also has beauty and wonder. How on earth do you put the two together? That's what made him a seeker. Hmm. And if you read his book, Orthodoxy, I love it. He's a magnificent writer. He describes his incredible eureka moment when he comes to see that the Christian faith uniquely does justice to both, not just the brokenness or not just the beauty, but to both. Because of creation, there's incredible beauty in the world. But because of sin and alienation, there's brokenness. And you have a deep explanation for both. And Chesterton describes it almost nuts and bolts, a hole fitting a spike. And it's his eureka moment, his excitement on the page is incredible. It's palpable. And he comes to a deep and living faith in God. It's a wonderful story. 
Yeah, he describes that moment and using these really illustrative terms to describe it as just everything finally falling into place mm-hmm. and uh, locking into where it ought to go. Sim- I guess similar to how a uh, grandfather clock has all of its gears that fit into place. And whenever they work together, the, the clock strikes and, and, and chimes. And, you know, the, the clock was chiming in his mind, so to say, as he was discovering it. But he knew these two things, that the world was broken and that there was beauty. And so he was trying to find a grand story that explained both those things that he knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then he started to apply it to, how did it, uh, that, that experience, because one thing that I thought was unique about his story, and this is, you see this in Lewis as well, was that the experience didn't just lead him to explore what made sense of that experience and then led him to Christianity but really had an ongoing effect on his life and faith after that in his emphasis on the uh, beauty of all of the ordinary things in the world and on the importance of gratitude. No, I love that about him. As you say, it's the simple things in the world and the importance of the local. You know, he saw a Wendell Berry before Wendell Berry. Hmm. And he has a deep sense of the simple and the basic and the local in a very wonderful way. But always, as you put it, he's seeing that the faith is the key that opens the lock. And when you see the alternatives that don't work, the things that don't fit the keyhole, then you realize the wonder when you discover God's truth and how it just fits all the questions and all the problems. Yeah. Out of all the chapters in the book, uh, there's at least one that I know that you personally knew the subject of the chapter, and that was Peter Berger. And his chapter, his signal of transcendence, I thought was interesting uh, because it came more from a, uh, it seemed as though, unless I missed something, it, it, seemed, it, it came from an arresting thought that he had more than something that he saw, like, uh, like Chesterton or uh, Malcolm Mudridge. Who, they, they saw something that arrested him. For him, it was, a, it was a thought. And I have to say that with this chapter, whenever I was reading through it, for a while I was, I, I was reading it and thinking, you know, I just don't know if I'm following this one. It, this one's not making sense to me. But then it finally came together, and I thought that it was brilliant. And he talks about a mother's love as the signal of transcendence. So can you explain that one from your experience of knowing Peter and, uh, and what that signal was about? Well, for him, it was so basic. What is more prototypical of humanity than a mother who loves her child, comforting the child in the night? Maybe it's had a nightmare, or maybe it's heard a sound, and it is really fearful. And the mother picks it up, cuddles it, comforts it, and said, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And Berger's just pondering. Now, think of that. Nothing is more prototypically maternal or parental But in fact, is it true? Is the mother in fact lying? After all, the mother's going to die, and then the child himself or herself is going to die too. And the universe has a lot of dangerous, horrendous things in it. So when the mother says, it's going to be all right, what's it mean? It's actually pointing towards a fundamental view of order in the universe behind everything, that if it's true, would have to assume and require certain truths. Maybe it's not true, and the mother is lying, or maybe out of love, trying to pretend that all is really well, but it's fictional. Mm. No, Berger says, if you really start thinking about this, 
it's assuming and requires certain things. And he's got a lot of examples in his little book, A Rumor of Angels. And so, for instance, going back to W.H. Auden, he points out how even something like judgment and damnation assume and require something. So I love the little quote from Winston Churchill. He used to say, the best argument for God is Hitler and Stalin. Hmm. Why? Because they're people for whom a hell is necessary. There are certain evils so evil that nothing in this life quite answers the evil that they represent, and so on. In other words, Burgers, you're right. It's not his own experience. He's looking at a mother's cry in the night, but he's examining it and pointing out how it points out far, far deeper things than you realize in the moment. Mm. And as I'm a parent, I have two small children, and I've been in that situation before as the father being the one to hold them, uh, whether, uh, you know, whether it be fear from fireworks going off. My son was terrified of fireworks for a little while or of a storm or whatever else. And, and, and this is whenever it finally started to click for me reading that chapter, uh, identifying with it myself as a parent that you hold the child and you tell them that everything's going to be okay. And you don't just do that because you want them to calm down, uh, or whatever else. And you don't do so telling yourself that you're, that you know, that it's not really true, but it is the most natural thing that comes up from inside of you to let them know that everything will be okay. And why is it that that natural urge and thought comes to your mind to then communicate to the child? And that's when it finally started to click for me. Well, Aaron, you know, when I was a boy, I was born, as you know, in China, Mm -hmm. World War II, 17 million were killed in the Japanese invasion. We lived in a famine in which another 5 million died of of, of lack of food. And we lived then in Nanking, the capital, and we saw the beginning of the reign of terror. And eventually, maybe between 50 and 70 million of Chinese were killed as the revolution unfolded. Hmm. But in all that mayhem and maelstrom of death and plague and disaster, I never saw my parents with anything but a quiet, unwavering faith in the Lord. Now, the situation was terrible, but you could sum it up what my dad used to say in a couple of sentences. God is greater than all. God can be trusted in all situations. Have faith in God. Have no fear. Now, in a, that's a sort of heavy-handed way of saying what the mother is actually assuming and requiring when any parent says it's going to be all right. There is fundamental order in the universe, and behind it all is a God of great character who keeps his promises and is true to his words. Everything will be all right, despite all the contradictions we see at the moment. Mm. And so it's being willing to recognize these arresting thoughts or experiences and then follow them through, that the signals of transcendence are all about that they don't and no no one signal is just trying to get us to uh draw attention to itself but beyond itself and what it means in other words there's a moment of attention something grabs your attention and then there's a desire for an explanation what's behind it 
And then with the real seeker, there's an engagement. In other words, you can say, oh, that was interesting. Slough it off, as Kenneth Clark did the first time. But seekers are people who are, who are grabbed by whatever, whatever the experience is and then set out in a search to find the answers. Hmm. Now, in my book, I don't spell out the answers, as you mentioned earlier. My other book, and this is a companion to that, The Great Quest, sets out the whole of the journey. This one is just really how these signals prompt people to start. But in our highly secular society, just starting, just thinking and caring enough to start searching, that's the key thing that so many people need. Yeah. So I mentioned that Peter Berger is one of the figures in this chapter that you actually, that you had a uh, close relationship with. He was a, a friend and mentor of yours. Was there anyone else that you wrote about in this book that you had the privilege of meeting or uh, knowing? Well, yes, indeed. There's the chapter, I don't know if you read that one, on the fashion model. Mm -hmm. That is actually my dear wife, <laughs> although her professional name then is different from her, the name she was born with and the name we call her now. Wow. That's actually the story of my wife and how she came to faith. Wow. I know that one well. You did not include that in the in the chapter. No, the, quite the ending of that, in, in the in the end of that story, and that's that's interesting because I finished that chapter wanting to go uh, find that memoir that you mentioned, her memoir, uh, and, and find out what was the end of her story. Well, go ahead. Then, now that we're on it, you have to tell the story. <laughs> well, well, you know, my wife grew up in L.A. Oh, it's a long story, but let me just get to the heart of it. Mm -hmm. Through a series of accidents, she got into the fashion world and went from San Francisco to Toronto to Paris to New York and was one of the Ford model girls and on the front cover of Vogue many times and engaged to a French baron who was a millionaire and young and handsome and dashing the same age as she was. And then every weekend they would go to Paris and they would go to parties, uh, her fiancé's friends, Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Pablo Picasso, Salvador Dali. And one weekend they were at a party in Salvador Dali's apartment in the Hotel Maurice. Dali had a pet cheetah, a mm. painted ocelot called Babu. And this magnificent creature was on a gold chain and all that, pacing restlessly between the guests at the party. And suddenly, Windsor, as she was then, saw this incredible creature. And it just seemed it had been defanged, declawed, desexed, de-everything. It seemed a terrible caricature of what it was born to be, mm. a jungle animal. But then she looked at the people with all the splendor of their garments and the triviality of their conversations. And she thought, my word, we are a caricature too. And she felt she was looking into an abyss. Now, both she and her fiance were atheists. And she said, we've got to search for the meaning of life. Now, I haven't told the full story of how she went from there and how her search developed, which she's written in her own book, Faces, which we hope will be published later this year. But again, there was a signal that left her restless until she found answers that she didn't have till that point. 
Mm. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, I'm really surprised. <laughs> you uh you you left the the big part of the ending of that story out but that's uh that's amazing yeah and her story was was great like i said it was it was uh so uh, such a good story so well told that i finished that chapter wanting to go and uh learn more about her story and uh i think i just went ahead and moved on to the next one and, and forgot to go look later but that is uh, that, uh but so interesting so she's not the only relative in the book either uh, but you wrote of another relative, which was your paternal grandfather. Uh, but in I this case, you didn't, yeah. you, uh, you didn't get to meet him. I never met my grandfather because he died in China uh, treating a soldier when my own father was only 17. So I never met him, but I did remember my grandmother. And their story is quite an incredible one. Mm -hmm. In this case, the signal of love in their family, as I made clear, was not something that led them to faith, but it was something that meant the world to them as people who are deeply people of faith. Yeah, and I enjoy that chapter uh, for several reasons. The It's a great story. And because as I was reading through the book, I was wondering, can signals of transcendence be something for Christians too? Oh, yeah. And I think the deepest story of all is the burning bush. Mm. Although in Moses' case, the gap between the signal, that bush which is burning but not burned up, the gap between that and his actually encountering the Lord face to face was only seconds apart. I think that's the greatest signal of all that's there in the Bible. But my grandparents too, though, I think love if you think about it, love has been cheapened and uh, debased in our hookup culture age in a hundred ways. But anyone who thinks deeply about love, and I love that song, if love is not forever, what's forever for? There's something about you know when you're in love that on the one hand, you want it to go on forever. The experience is so incredible that the thought that it's only temporary and fragile and won't last forever is horrendous. The love you feel must go on forever, and so on. So I love that chapter too, because I love the notion of love, which is very easily distorted and cheapened, mm. and I think is the most profound signal. One of the running themes you see through many of the chapters is that uh, for several of these people, and if not all of them in one one degree or another, we're wrestling with, as you put before, the brokenness of the world and the beauty or the, um, the evil that we can see in humanity, but also the goodness and uh, the hurts, but also the power of love. Mm -hmm. And just from talking to you and getting to know you, it seems as though that in your own, in your own story, that there's quite a bit of these themes as well, growing up in China in the time that you did and witnessing an incredible amount of brokenness of the world and of Wiccan is done, but then uh, getting to see the testimony of your parents and hear the stories of uh, from your grandparents, it seems as though these themes have also been a large part of your life as well. How do you think that your own story has affected what you've done with your life now, and and how consciously have has what was your own story? Uh, did it play a part in what you've devoted your life to? Well, I think a huge part. I mean, you take a couple of very simple things. Having grown up with 
death and war and violence and disease all around. My own view of life in the first 10 years I lived has to be realistic. And I love what I call the bifocal vision of the Christian faith, that it is both incredibly hopeful with incredible ideals and we're reaching to things like justice on the earth which won't be fulfilled till the Messiah comes but we're reaching for things we want to leave better in the world when we die than when we enter the world so there's incredible idealism and strong hope always and yet the profound realism so you, you take my book the Magna Carta of Humanity the huge difference between the biblical revolution and the French Revolution is that the Bible is realistic. So the American experiment has checks and balances, separation of powers. Why? Because of the potential of the abuse of power, because of sin. So no one can accuse the Bible and the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, of being unrealistic. Whereas the Enlightenment faith, the French Revolution, utopian. Communist revolution, utopian. And whenever you have a gap between the ideal and the real that is so great, you have to fill it. And the Marxists fill it with violence, coercion. So I love this bifocal vision of the Christian faith that has immense realism and yet hope, always. And certainly my own early years made that challenge impossible to duck for me. Mm. So if someone is listening and, um, and hopefully a, a seeker and they're wondering to themselves, maybe they're reflecting on some experiences and they would ask you the question, how do I know that I've seen or heard or experienced one of these signals of transcendence? What would you answer them? Well, I'd put it slightly differently, Aaron. I'd say, read the 10 stories. And ask yourself if you've had experiences like that. And if you've then gone on to think about them, as Auden did, as C.S. Lewis did, as Chesterton did, and so on. We're all different. So life's promptings are different. So Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. Too many people have experiences, things that jolt them, trigger them, prompt them but they brush it aside in the busyness of life and they simply don't think. And they're leading unexamined lives. So none of the 10 stories are, are a proof. They're all pointers. Mm -hmm. Those 10 people were prompted by those things to think deeper. But that might be different for 100 other people. But the question is life raises questions like that to all of us. And the question is whether we move on from what captures our attention to what really demands and requires an explanation and then should the third step engage us until we're unsatisfied until we find an answer so these are just sample chapters as it were mm. but i hope they'll trigger some deeper thinking yeah once again going back to the the seeker who is listening or watching and wanting to explore this for themselves what are some more ways? I think that I agree completely that reading these example stories, or as you call them, sample stories, is one of the, the best things you can do to 
start to uh, fine tune your own radar to pick up on the signals. <laughs> but do you have any other thoughts that you would give someone uh, living in our modern world as we have it, which seems to, um, in all of its features, try to block out any signals? What other practical advice would you give to someone who is trying to attune themselves to hear the signals if they are there and who is seeking out these similar signs of transcendence? Well, one obvious way to go is to take the ideas that are current around us and press them out to the end to see where the consequences, the logic of the presuppositions leads. Because so many ideas are attractive in the beginning but the more you see the logical consequences, you hit the, your head against the wall. So people have got to be tough-minded in thinking that way. And then thinking, now, what would the answers have to be if they're different and better than that? So, um, for example, modern people all believe in human rights. But what's the basis for human rights if we're just a selfish gene, or a naked ape, or something like that on a level with other animals in our world. Is there any basis for it? Or are we just kidding ourselves and patting ourselves on the back as human beings? Or could there be any alternative way? In other words, Nietzsche was very good at this. You know, you had in England at the time of Nietzsche, you had people like uh, George Eliot, who was a writer and an atheist. And she said, God could be dead, but we still have virtue and morals. Nietzsche said, no, no, no. These people are what he called odious windbags of progressive optimism. If God is really dead, you've unhinged the universe. And among other things, he says, in his famous parable of the madman, who will wipe the blood off our hands now? So you take America's incredible sense of guilt and the way it's being exploited by the radical left in terms of racism and slavery. How do you deal with guilt? And you see that the modern ways just simply don't work. There has to be a deeper, better way. And you'll be thinking back in ways that lead you to the Jewish and Christian idea of atonement, mm -hmm. which is simply far deeper than anything today. And so I would say have the courage to take an idea, press it right to the end. And when you hit the head against the wall, ask yourself, what would it take for something better? And usually that would point you to where the Jewish and Christian faiths point all along. Mm. Yes. And I would add to that for the person to be, uh, to be patient and to be willing to go on a long journey if necessary. As you pointed out, with the exception of Auden, I think that nearly every other person in the book, their their journey was, was a long one. As you mentioned for Lewis, it was a little over uh, a, a dozen years of between the signals and the uh, mm -hmm. noticing these ideas, having these obstacles in their path, in other words, uh, of problems they're trying to figure out with the world, to coming to a resolution and meeting God. Uh, sometimes it's a longer journey. Well, exactly. Auden was not terribly long, a matter of months. My wife, it was more than two years. With Lewis, more than 10 years, and so on. But there's always a gap between the search, triggered by the signal, and then the finding, which is the first step of faith. 
Um, what do you want to leave with our audience before we, before we close? Well, back to the, obviously I've written the book for individuals. In other words, readers who want to read and think about these particular lives, it's written for individuals. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus already, the crying need is for a civilizational level awakening. We are in this Plato's cave. We are in this secular world without windows. And there needs to be a massive breakout. Otherwise, we won't have human freedom and fulfillment. And so my little book is just one tiny part of it. You think of what's happening in the revival in Kentucky at Asbury now. But we need to pray that God will break in and that we will break out. And there will be a massive nationwide, civilizational-wide reawakening to the reality of truth and to the reality of who our Lord is. You know, I call this, I'm finishing another book, I call this a civilizational moment. Now, as every great civilization, and all of them today except the Western civilization, are in museums because they failed the moment. In other words, a civilization eventually loses touch with the inspiration that makes it. And at that point, there are only three broad options. A renewal of the inspiration that made the civilization, or a replacement of it, or decline. The West is there now. What made the West is the Jewish and Christian faiths. But the West in the intelligentsia has rejected the faith that made it. And in the case of America, the intelligentsia have rejected the revolution that made it. So we're in an extraordinary moment. And either there's a massive civilization-wide renewal of faith, an awakening, a breaking out of the cave, or the West is quite simply in decline. Now, my interest is not finally the West, of course, is that people, through signals of transcendence or a bigger awakening, can really discover faith in the Lord behind the whole of life and behind existence itself. Well, I can't think of a better way to wrap up this conversation, and I just think that was excellent. And I'm excited to hear that you got another book. I can say I'm not surprised to hear that you have another one coming. Uh, but I look forward to hopefully having you on again to talk about the civilizational moment uh, and what all you have for us there. But Oz, just once again, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show. Once again, uh, it's been just an absolute pleasure and privilege every time uh, I've been able to have you on. And I know that it has brought about fruit in our audience. And uh, so thank you for not just coming on the show, but for all the work that you have done and you are doing. Well, thank you, Aaron. It's a real delight to be on with you, and I hope there'll be another time. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at 
Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.